Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. It says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured at seeing him who is invisible. Thank you very much. You may be seated. History tells us that the logical successor to the Pharaoh of Egypt would have been his son. In the event that Pharaoh did not have a son, his daughter's son would be the next Pharaoh of the land. Now, most everybody in here is familiar how Moses became Pharaoh's daughter's son. You remember Pharaoh's daughter was down by the river of Egypt taking her daily bath. She did not take a weekly bath like a roommate I had in college, but she took a daily bath. Uh, this roommate, it was so terrible, we went to the dean of men and we said, can we throw him in the shower and scrub him down? And the dean of men gave us permission to do that. I'll tell you, his socks were so bad, they almost stood up by themselves. Three fellas were riding down the road, and one fellow said, somebody's deodorant's wearing off. Other fellow said, ain't mine. I don't wear any. But anyway, she took a daily bath. She did not take a weekly bath. Well, as she was taking her daily bath, she heard some crying going on in the bulrushes. She went over and picked up this little baby boy and adopted him as her very own. Now, do you know what the name Moses means? It means to draw out. So every time she addressed Moses by name in the palace... She was reminded that she drew him out of the water. Now make no mistake about it. Moses was being groomed to be the next Pharaoh of the land. Acts chapter 7 and verse 22. Now Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deed. You know what that means? That means on occasion when he would walk out the door... Trumpets would blow. People would fall down on their faces and do obeisance to him. He wore the finest robes of his day. He rode in the finest chariots of his day. He had access to the finest private tutorage of his day. But there came a time in Moses' life when he had a choice to make. Am I going to waste my life in the palace of the king or am I going to let my life count for God? This morning, I'm speaking on this subject. What are you going to do with your life? There are three things that Moses had to decide upon from our text. Now, I wish I could claim credit for this outline, but it's in the text. Three words that start with the letter R. 
Will you notice, please, number one, his refusal. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, uh, Moses is in the palace and he's looking out the window. He sees his Hebrew brothers under hard labor and bondage. They were bent over in the red-hot Egyptian sun, making bricks out of slime and mortar. And the Egyptians would come along with their scorpion-like whips, and they would crack them on the back. Well, Moses had all of that he could take. He went down, killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. Young people, listen. With that act, he was saying no to the palace, and yes to the will of God. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it was the will of God for Moses to kill that Egyptian. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that from that time forward, he could never be Pharaoh over the land of Egypt. His refusal. Let me ask you, have you ever refused anything for the will of God? If you have not, you're not in the will of God. There comes a time when a young lady has to refuse a boyfriend. That boyfriend may be a good Christian. He may read his Bible every day. He may go soul winning. But he's not called to the mission field, and she is. She's got to be willing to refuse that boyfriend for the will of God. By the way, fellas, if God has called you to preach and you are enamored with a young lady, you better find out if she's willing to be a preacher's wife. If she is not, you better drop her. Uh, and I could tell you story after story after story of men who have dropped out of the ministry because their wife was not on the same page philosophically. So are you willing to refuse? There comes a time when a young person has to refuse a scholarship to a school. Somebody says, well, Brother Comfort, I got this scholarship. Doesn't that prove it's the will of God? I say, where do you read that in the Bible? You see, the devil may give you a scholarship that gets you out of the will of God. Are you willing to refuse? In Luke 9 and verse 23, And Jesus said unto them all, If any man come to me and take up his cross daily and follow me, if he doesn't do that, he cannot be my disciple. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, it says, If any man come to me and hate not his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, and his sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what does it mean when God says we're to hate our father and mother, etc.? Does that mean that tonight, before I go to bed, I will wrap my arms around my wife, which I will, and give her a big kiss, which I will, and say, honey, I hate you. <laughs> now, is that what it means? No. In the Bible, terms of emotion are terms of comparison. Jacob have I loved, 
Esau have I hated. And so what Jesus is saying is this, I am to love the will of God so much that the love for all of my other loved ones will seem as hatred in my love for the will of God. Do you love the will of God that much? Galatians 2.20, Paul says, For I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. What does it mean when it says we're to crucify ourselves? It means to say no to our own will for the will of God. Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I under the world. Crucify your own flesh. In Philippians 3, 7 and 8, Paul said, Those things which I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. What does that mean? That means Paul said, I've counted my own will as garbage, refuse, in comparison to my love for the will of God. He had labored in Ephesus for three years. He was getting ready to leave. And the Miletum elder said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, they're liable to kill you. They're liable to stone you. They're liable to put you in prison. You know what Paul replied? Acts 20, 22 through 24. And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that befall me there, saving that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city that bonds and afflictions abide me. But listen to what he said. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. You know what he was saying? He was saying, listen, I settled out a long time ago on the road to Damascus when I said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He said, I don't care if they beat me. I don't care if they put me in prison. My life is not dear unto myself. It is only dear unto the will of God. Does the will of God mean that much to you? I was preaching after our first mission field trip to Kenya, Africa, 1977 in January. And I was really burdened about getting laborers to go uh, to Kenya, Africa. And I preached in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. God reached down in that meeting and he saw Ralph Stewart, a PhD in science, already making a six-figure salary, 1977. God reached down and he said, I don't want you wasting your life in a chemical laboratory. I want you in my service. You know what he did? He left his nets, went to Maranatha Baptist Bible College. Did you know him, Brother Spencer? As a professor in biology, making $15,000 a year. He was willing to say no to the big salary for the will of God. 1978, I preached in Marshalltown, Iowa. 
God reached down in that meeting and he saw Bob Matney, superintendent of the public school system, had a high-paying, prestigious job. God reached down and he said, Bob Matney, I don't want you wasting your life in a system I gave up on years ago. I want you in my service. You know what he did? He left his nets, went to Newington, Connecticut, was the headmaster of a Christian school, making half the salary he was making in Marshalltown, Iowa. I preached in that chapel, and 47 young people came down the aisle and surrendered for full-time Christian service. Bob Matney, with tears in his eyes, got up before the young people And he said, young people, five years ago in a Ron Comfort meeting, I did the same thing you've done today. He said, you know why I did it? If I spent all of my life in the public school system, I could never see 47 young people surrender for full-time Christian service. I want to ask you, are you willing to refuse for the will of God. Somebody says, Brother Comfort, I hope I find the will of God for my life. Let me give you a statement. Anybody who wants to know the will of God will find it. Did you get that? That's Bible, folks. John 7, 17. If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know. There are two things you need to know the will of God. Psalm 40 and verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Number one, you need a delight or a desire to do the will of God. Number two, you need to validate the will of God through the Word of God. 1984, we were in Spain for meetings. And I met one of the finest missionaries of our day. He is now in heaven. J.T. Lyons said, Brother Comfort, do you know how we got to Spain? He said, I had spent 20 years in Liberia. God had given me an airplane and I could go into places where the gospel had never been preached. And he said, we came home on furlough and we came through Spain And God began to speak to my heart about Spain. And I said, I began to argue with God. And I said, God, that's not logical. I spent 20 years in Liberia. I had a hard time learning the language. I'm 58 years of age. I couldn't learn another language at my age. But he went from church to church on his furlough. And God kept speaking to him about Spain. One night he tried to go to sleep, tossed and turned, couldn't sleep, got up, opened his Bible to Romans 15 and verse 24. You know what it says? Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come unto you. He went and woke his wife up and he said, honey, it's settled. We're going to Spain. So you see, he wanted the will of God and he validated the will of God through the word of God. All right, number one is refusal. Notice, please, number two, his reproach. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. His refusal, number two, his reproach. 
In Exodus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the day after he's killed the Egyptian, he's looking out the window and he sees his Hebrew brothers fighting each other. He goes down and he breaks them up and he says, wait a minute, you can't fight each other. We're in this thing together. If we don't hang together, we're going to hang separately. You know what they said to him? They said, big shot, young man, are you listening to me, please? Look at me, please. They said, big shot, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who do you think you are? We saw what you did when you killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. You're in big trouble with the Pharaoh of Egypt. And that began a life of reproach that he was to experience until the last day he lived in Deuteronomy 34 and he stood on Mount Nebo. Now get this. Do you know one month later after he had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, one month later, they came to a place called Merah, Exodus chapter 15. And the whole nation murmured against him. As a matter of fact, Numbers 14.22 says, they murmured against him ten times. Now whenever you see that phrase in the Bible, it's like saying, over and over and over and over and over again. So they murmured against him for 40 years through the wilderness. Exodus chapter 17, they came to a place called Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. And the Bible says they were ready to stone Moses. I believe at that time, the devil reached in Moses' ear and he said, Moses, you dumb fool. These people don't appreciate you. They're ready to stone you. And you know what I believe? I believe in Exodus 17 and verse 4, he did not defend himself. He did not say, all right, one by one, step out here. We'll see who's going to stone whom. No. I love what it says, Exodus 17 and verse 4. And Moses cried under the Lord, saying. That was his place of refuge. Now, young man, if you pass your church, you're going to have people that don't like when you preach strongly. And uh, they're going to get a group of people to uh, murmur against you. Your place of refuge ought to be where Moses was. The kids have heard me say this through the years. I have in the front of my Bible four words. No attack, no defense. No attack, no defense. And I believe that that was Moses' attitude. No attack, no defense. I believe the saddest chapter in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 34. God takes Moses up to Mount Nebo and he says, now Moses, look over in the promised land. He said, you can see it, but your feet are not going to touch down in it in this life. Why? Don't you remember Moses? I told you to speak to the rock and you smote the rock. You disobeyed me. And because you disobeyed me, your feet will not enter the promised land in this life. 
You know what I believe? The devil reached down in Moses' ear and said, Moses, you dumb fool. You could be sitting in the palace of the king. These people didn't appreciate you. All these 40 years, they murmured against you. And now you're God. That's some God you've got there. Led the children of Israel for 40 years, and now he won't even let you enter the promised land. You know what I believe Moses replied? I believe he said, Satan, shut up! Shut up! If I had it to do over again, I'd do the same thing. Why? It's better to suffer reproach in the will of God than to sit in the palace of the king outside of the will of God. The world can't understand that. They don't understand that in the midst of persecution, the child of God can still have the joy bells ringing in his heart. I think about Tiger Woods. He entered the PGA when he, in 1996. From that time on, he has made $1.4 billion. He spent $54 million on a private jet. He had a yacht built 155 feet long for $25 million. He bought 10 acres in Jupiter, Florida, built a mansion for $55 million. He carries his furniture with him to a PGA event so he can be comfortable. Are you listening? The best day that Tiger Woods has had with all of his toys is worse than the worst day I've had in the ministry. I want to say there is joy in serving Jesus Christ. The only place of happiness is in the will of God. Are you willing to refuse? Are you willing to suffer reproach? I think of every disciple that Jesus had died a martyr's death, except John. John was boiled in hot seething oil, banished to the Isle of Patmos, where he died a slow, painful, agonizing death. James, a brother of our Lord, when he was 92 years of age, he was taken to the proconsul, urged to renounce his faith in Christ and escape martyrdom. He refused. On his way to his execution, he led his executioner to Christ and they both went out and died a martyr's death together. Then I think about Matthew. He was slain with a large knife. Mark was dragged to death by the people of Alexandria. Uh, Luke was hanged on an olive tree. They got ready to crucify Peter. You know what Peter said? He said, no, I'm not worthy to die the way the Son of God did. So at his own request, they crucified him upside down with his head pointing toward the ground. Young people, do you know that's the origin of the so-called peace symbol of the broken cross? Whenever Titus and his Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem in 70 AD and leveled the city, they carried the inverted or the broken cross. That's always been a symbol of anti-Christendom. Hey, no place that I have ever been in my life except the open tomb of Christ affected me like being in the Mamertine prison. You go in the Mamertine prison, there's a stone floor, and they would take a grate and remove it. They would throw the victim down to a dark, damp, dingy, dismal dungeon. 
On one side, Paul was chained to a Roman soldier. On the other side, he was chained to the Roman cell. As he would lie there on the floor, he could watch the rats as they gnawed away at his feet. He could watch the lice as they crawled all over his body. He wrote to Timothy in his dying days, and he said, Timothy, winter's coming on. He said, it's cold down here. He said, bring my cloak. But you know what he said? Most of all, bring the parchments. You know what he was saying? He was saying, listen, I'll endure the cold. I'll endure the darkness. But if you have to forget anything, forget my cloak, but bring the word of God. The guy told us that just before they took him out to cut off his head, he led 37 of the guards to Jesus Christ. And as they cut off the head of the Apostle Paul, he was singing the praises of God. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, James, and John are taken in the Sanhedrin. And they said, you better shut your mouth up about this man Jesus. If you don't, we'll beat you with a leaded whip, the cat of nine tails. You know what they replied? Acts 4 and verse 20. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Go ahead and meet us. We're still going to preach about Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, this time they were not threatened. This time they were beaten. 13 times on the right side. 13 times in the center. 13 times on the left side. And you know what Acts 5 and verse 41 says? And they departed from the presence of the council. What? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Are you willing to bear his reproach? You know, the worst thing they could do was to kill a Christian because the more they killed the Christian, the more they grew and multiplied. When they killed a Christian, they said, boy, these Christians really know how to die. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, they that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Acts chapter 12, James has his head cut off. Acts chapter 12 and verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. I think about Polycarp, the aged pastor of the church at Smyrna. When Polycarp was well in his 90s, he was taken to the council, urged to renounce his faith in Christ and escape martyrdom. Polycarp came out with these famous words, 80 and 6 years have I served the Lord Christ, and he's never done me anything but good. How then can I renounce my king and my savior? They led this tottery old man out to nail him to the stake. And as they started to pound the ten-inch spikes, he said, no, no. He said, you don't have to nail me to the stake to secure my remaining in the fire. The same God that gave me grace to come to the fire will give me grace to remain in the fire without being nailed to the stake. That day they doused his body with pitch. They lit a match. His body became a human torch. And you know what Polycarp was heard praying in his dying moments? I thank thee, O God, that thou hast reserved me until this moment and given me the opportunity of taking my place among the martyrs.
They had something, didn't they? Philippians 1 in verse 29, For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe on His name, but also to suffer for His sake. 2 Timothy 2 in verse 12, If we suffer with Him, we shall reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Number one, His refusal. Number two, His reproach. Notice, please, number three. Here's a bottom line. His reward. Verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. The reward. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. The reward. I had been with J.C. Joyner for 24 times more than any preacher in America. I preached in Phoenix, Arizona in uh, 1966. And through that, I got a meeting with J.C. Joyner, been with him 24 times. J.C. was a football player in college, spent time in the ministry. But just a couple of years ago, J.C. went to be with the Lord. After pastoring a church he started for 60 years, I was asked to have a part in J.C.'s funeral. And folks, my wife and I went to New Testament Baptist Church a half an hour before the funeral. And there were people lined up for a long ways waiting to get in the church. That day in J.C. Joyner's funeral, there were over 800 people. When I got up to speak, I said, let me ask you a question. How many of you were either saved under J.C. Joyner's ministry or you were called into God's service through his ministry? Brother Love, over 250 people stood to their feet. And I thought, my, what a legacy. What a reward. The reward, ladies and gentlemen, is threefold. Number one, there's the well done when we cross the finish line. Every September 14th, I write in my journal these words. I say, dear God, thank you for another year of fruitful service. And my ultimate prayer is that when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be no moral blemish on my life. And I'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now you remember, I told you that Moses didn't get to enter the promised land in this life. All right, now listen. Come with me about 2,000 years later. Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John. Who do they see on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. You know why? I believe that God came to Moses and he said, Now Moses, you led the children of Israel for 40 years through the wilderness and I didn't let you enter the promised land in your lifetime, but well done, good and faithful servant. 
I'm going to take you to the promised land with me now. Second Timothy 4, 6 to 8, Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not unto me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. There's the well done when we cross the finish line. Number two, there's the peace that we have in our hearts of being in the will of God. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. John 16 and verse 33, These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. Listen to me, young people. In all these 62 years, almost, there has never been a day when I've gotten up and looked in the mirror and said, God, I'm so sorry you've called me to be an evangelist. I want you to know, young people, I'm not enduring what I'm doing. Bless God, I am enjoying it. And the only place of peace and happiness is in the will of God. Four years ago, I was preaching in Blairsville, Georgia. And uh, after Sunday school, a well-dressed, handsome man came in the door. He came to Brother Mason and he said, Pastor Mason, he said, I want to talk to Brother Comfort. He said, now, I don't want to talk to him before he preaches because I don't want to get his mind off of his message. Well, after I got through preaching and dismissed the crowd, Dr. Will Moody came up to me, introduced himself, Dr. Will Moody, one of the finest surgeons in all of Georgia. And he said, do you remember about 35 years ago, a young man from Georgia Tech came to you and said he had listened to your tape on the holiness of God and he got saved. He reached in his pocket and he pulled out the tape. He said, here's that tape. And he said, I'm that former medical student at Georgia Tech. And I said, well, Dr. Moody, let me ask you a question. I said, can we get together? I'd love to hear about the circumstances surrounding your salvation. He said, now on Tuesday I have 11 surgeries, but Wednesday we can get together for lunch. We sat down in a restaurant, and I said, now, Dr. Moody, tell me about the circumstances surrounding your, your salvation. He said, well, I was in my frat house at Georgia Tech. My frat brothers were in the next room smoking pot and drinking liquor. He said, but I had my Bible open. And I was down on my knees and I was weeping. And I said, God, please send somebody along to show me how to be saved and have my sins forgiven. He said, when I got up from my knees... A knock came to the door. A young man in a Christian ministry in the college, his name was Rich. He had come around those guys who were smoking pot and drinking liquor, and he knocked on Will Moody's door. And Will Moody went to the door after he introduced himself. He said, can you show me how to be saved he said, I was just down on my knees asking God to send somebody along to show me how to be saved. And Rich said, yes, I can show you how to be saved. Well, he said, I'll tell you what, 
I'd like for you to listen to this tape on the holiness of God. And after you do, I'll tell you how to be saved. Well, Will Mooey put it in, played it through once. He took it out, put it in again, played through it twice. When it finished the second time, he was on his knees asking God to save him. And before we got through with a meal, he looked at me and he said, Brother Comfort, he said, I hope this will not offend you, but I'd like to give you something. You know what he gave me? He gave me an envelope with 16 $100 bills. It didn't offend me. And uh, he said, you know, my wife got saved. My children got saved. They're in Christian colleges training to serve the Lord. I'll tell you what, that money has been spent a long time ago. But the testimony of Will Moody will go with me to my dying day. There is joy and peace in serving God. So number one, there's a well done. Number two, there's a peace we have. And number three, in Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 30, Peter came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. What are we going to get out of it? And Jesus said, Peter, you'll not only get in the life to come, life everlasting, but in this life, you'll get manifold more. That's the third part of the reward. Mark chapter 10 and verse 30, No man's left father and mother, house and lands, wives and children, but I'll multiply unto you a hundredfold. That's the third part of the reward. In closing, God began to do that to me as a 15-year-old boy. My brother was on his way downtown in the military in Panama City, Florida. He was going to get drunk with one of his buddies. He stopped by a field where there was an open-air uh, service. And the preacher got up and he preached a simple salvation message. And he said, listen... He said, if you'd like to know how to be saved, how to have your sins forgiven, know how you're on your way to heaven, he said, you come down and see me after I close in prayer. And so my brother told his buddy, I'm going to go down and talk to that preacher. Long story short, my brother got down on his knees and he got saved. He didn't go downtown and get drunk. He went back to the barracks and wrote his little brother and his mom and dad a letter and he said, I've been born again and God's done something for me that I want him to do for you. My brother is, was the greatest influence in my life. You listen, if my brother had not stopped and listened to that preacher in that open field, there'd be no ambassador of Baptist College. There would be no over a thousand graduates around the world serving God. So Billy came home. We had moved back to my birthplace, Elmira, New York from Asheville. And uh, so Billy came home on, uh, after being a, a semester at Bob Jones University. And he had me out on the street passing out tracts, winning souls. We took the wordless book. We led... Uh, led children to Christ and we were having street meetings my brother was doing the preaching and the police came and he stopped my brother he said listen young man you can't do that you've got to have a permit from the sheriff in order to do this across the street from where we were having our street meeting was the Elmira Rescue Mission Al Shaw was the superintendent 
After the police left, he came over and he saw our plight. He said, I've heard your preaching, boys. He said, I like it. He said, the preaching you're doing now is the kind of preaching that took me from a drunkard's hell. And he said, God save me. He said, I'm superintend the rescue mission. He said, why don't you fellas just transfer your preaching from the street corner over to the rescue mission? He said, Billy, you do the preaching. And Ronnie, you do the singing. I had sung in the nightclubs, uh, TV, stage, and radio from the age of 7 to 15. Instead of being in a church on Sunday night, I was generally singing somewhere in a nightclub. Always had to be accompanied by my granddad or my dad because I was underage. But I came to my dad when God had saved me and called me to preach. And I said, Dad, I said, I don't care about the life that I've lived. I said, I have no desire for that anymore. And I said, if you'll let me, I'll go to Bob Jones Academy as a sophomore in the academy, and I'll begin preparing to preach. He said, Ronnie, you're a fool. Everything we work for all of your life is down the drain. I said, Dad, I don't care about that. God's called me to preach, and if you'll let me, I'll go to Bob Jones Academy and begin to prepare. He said, you can go, but if you go, I will not send you one penny. The three years I was in the academy, my daddy sent me zero. In the four years I was in college, one weekend dad broke his word and sent me $5. But God right away began to multiply to me moms and dads. I remember after three weeks of meetings in the rescue mission, Al Shaw called me to the platform. He said, Ron, the offerings have been $150. He said, I have in my hand a check that is made out to you. And I want you to go and enroll in Bob Jones Academy. Here were his words. You are my Timothy. You're my son in the faith. The first year I was at Bob Jones in the Academy, I had a roommate, Billy Shelton, whose parents lived in Greenville. Billy lived in the dorm. I believe God put him in the dorm for my benefit. One day, Billy came to me and he said, Ronnie, he said, I've told my mom and dad about you and they want to meet you. Can you go home and have supper with us this week? I said, I'd be glad to. And after being there with the, uh, the Sheltons, they said, Ron, you can go to your mailbox every weekend as long as you're in the academy or the university and there will be an envelope from the Sheltons with some money for your incidentals. And many times they would send a check to take care of my room board and tuition. Again, God multiplied unto me a mom and a dad. After my senior year in the academy, my friend who was a classmate, Ed Shaw, came to me and he said, Ron, I'm from Caldwell, Idaho. And he said, I can get you a job on construction if you can come and be in our house. And so I went out to Caldwell, Idaho, worked for five weeks as a hod carrier for a bricklayer. After the five weeks, the house was finished that we were working on. So I looked around Caldwell for work, couldn't find any. Somebody came to me and said, Ron, if you can go get to Chicago, there are good jobs, they pay well, you can earn money to go back to school in the fall. So I hitchhiked 
from Caldwell, Idaho to Chicago, Illinois. Stayed in the YMCA hotel for two weeks looking for a job. You know, I came within a half an inch of finding a job. You say, what do you mean? I went to the railroad and they measured me. And they said, we're sorry, you're five feet five and a half. We don't hire anybody unless they're five feet six. I think I'm going to sue them. But anyway, (laughs) the last day I was there in the YMCA hotel, I got a call from a classmate, Barbara Bentley. I don't know how she knew to contact me at the YMCA hotel. I don't know how she knew I needed a job. And she called me and she said, I understand you're looking for a job. She said, my dad's an electrician. We live in Buffalo, New York. And if you can get here, you can work with my dad as his assistant. And so I hitchhiked from Chicago to Buffalo, New York. After being in the home of the Bentleys, they came to me and they said, Ron, we have one daughter and now we feel like we've got a son. We feel like you're our son. And if you have a need, don't hesitate to call on mom and dad Bentley. Next year, I went back my freshman year in college and I had a basketball injury. I was lying in the hospital with a cartilage operation. And I got that dreaded note from the business office. It said, Ron, we have kept you long enough that without your being able to pay your bill. Unless your bill is paid by such and such a date, we have no recourse, we must send you home. I didn't know where that money was coming from. Young people, honestly, before that day was over, I got a letter from Mom and Dad Bentley. And they said, Ronnie, we love you. We love you like our son. And God has laid it on our hearts to send you this check Evidently, you need it. You know how much that check was for? The exact amount to the penny that I owed in the business office. Again, God multiplied unto me a mom and a dad. After my freshman year in college, Fred Skeels, one of my society brothers, came to me, six feet four, 220 pounds. And Fred said, Ron, my dad's uh, working in the lumber industry in Roseburg, Oregon. And I've told my mom and dad about you. They've given you an opportunity to come and live in our home and work in the sawmill the rest of the summer. I did that for three summers. And before I left that third summer, they came to me and they said, we have two daughters, Kathy and Karen. We have one son, Freddie. And now we feel like we've got a little son. We feel like you're our son. I believe if the Skills were living today, I could call them up and say, Dad Skills, I need $10,000. Could I borrow it? I believe a check would be in the mail the next day for $10,000. Do you know they sent us money uh, at Christmas time to go out to Roseburg, Oregon? Every Christmas they would send us a check And in the letter it would say, divide this three ways for our grandchildren, my daughters. Two ways for our children, my wife and me. They've flown from Roseburg to Phoenix, Roseburg to Tampa to be in our meetings. And ladies and gentlemen, God again multiplied unto me a mom and a dad. Now why did God do that? I close with this. My first year in the academy, I came home 
after three months. And uh, it was Christmas time. The snow was two to three feet deep outside. And uh, our house was heated by oil. Uh, That night, I stayed at home, and Mom and Dad did not come home to be with me all night. My Mom and Dad, nine out of ten days, were drunk. That night, I sat in a rocking chair, covered up with blankets, and I was weeping. And I thought nine out of ten days, my mom and dad had been drunk. The last night I'm home, they haven't even come home to be with me. The next morning, I waited around the house, just hoping that mom and dad would come home, wrap their arms around my neck, tell me they loved me, and kiss me goodbye. Finally, ten o'clock came, and they still didn't come home. I knew it was time for me to go out to the highway and hitchhike back to Greenville. I stood there with my thumb out and tears streaming down my face. And I thought nine out of ten days, my parents had been drunk. The last night I'm home, they haven't even come home to be with me. And they haven't even come home to kiss me goodbye. But you know what? God has made that up to me so many times since then. Some of you right now are struggling with the will of God. You're like the poet. I said, let me walk in the fields. He said, no, walk in the town. I said, but there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers, but a crown. I said, but the sky is dark and there's nothing but noise and din. He wept as he sent me back. There's more, he said, there's sin. I said, but I'll miss the light. And friends will miss me, they say. He said, choose today whether I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, is it hard to decide? Twill not seem so hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I took one look at the fields, then cast my face toward the town. He said, my child, will you yield Will you give up the flowers for the crown? And into my hand went his. And into my heart came he. And now I walk in the light divine, the path I had feared to see. Hallelujah for the will of God. Everything I am or have or ever will be is due to the will of God.